This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Hugh MacDonald. Uh, I'm a sports journalist with The Herald uh, in, in Glasgow. Uh, I would like to welcome each and every one of you to this event tonight. Uh, it's the Edinburgh International Book Festival, of course, and it's, this event is sponsored uh, fittingly by The Guardian, uh, because I'm here with William Fotheringham, who writes for The Guardian and The Observer. As you all know, there's a couple of things I have to run through quite quickly. What I'll do is I'll try and keep my questions uh, to all quite brief and to the point because this is a sold out event and I would like to get as many questions from the floor as possible. If there are no questions and I can't uh, foresee that, uh, I've got a book, <laughs> no book here, so there'll be no problem that way. There'll be a book signing afterwards, just outside, turn right, uh, uh, the one there. Uh, obviously, the other thing is turn off all phones, uh, please. If the phone goes off, it'll be mine. Uh, I always forget to do it. Um, and uh, you're allowed to tweet, uh, but probably better when the, the lights go up. So um, that's the, the housekeeping. And uh, we'll sit down and, and go on briefly with the... Uh, the Natter, um, The Simpson book. Um, I reread it again to come to this event, and I was amazed not the way it stood up, but how poignant the story remains. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those stories that just once it gets a grip of you, you can't really, it, it doesn't really let go. I think it's I think it's it's a story that speaks to us in many different ways mm. as cyclists, you know, because. If we, if we compete, there's a bit of us in Tom and mm. a bit of Tom in us. Um, obviously, the, the theme of the performance-enhancing drugs, where that drives mm. men who compete, that theme is still very, very relevant mm. today. And then there's the, you know, there's the bigger story of you know, the guy who has a dream and mm. you know, dies trying to achieve mm -hmm. it. To remind anyone who doesn't know, of course, uh, uh, Tom Simpson died, you know, Longwood too. Um, Amphetamines, of course, played a part in his death, significant part, dehydration. The incredible thing about cyclists and, 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 and drugs is that imperfect storm that people who are really driven are given a drug like amphetamine that makes them drive even more. People who go to the edge of exhaustion take a drug that almost negates exhaustion. This was a huge part of the of the, the Simpson death, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, it, it was cycling's first major drug scandal, and mm. I mean, and I I came to it um, in the wake of the biggest scandal the sport mm. had had at, in re, of recent date, of, you know, the 1998 mm. Festina drugs bust, when the Tour de France was nearly abandoned because of um, the seizure of a massive mm. stash of, of drugs in the lead, in the events leading team, and. That event raised all sorts of questions about the sport, but that, that also went... When you started looking at Simpson, you realised that those, those questions went mm. right back, you know, 30 years, mm. and that Simpson was exactly where it all began, but there were, there were, there were just so many resonances. It's a huge ambivalence in the book, right down to the title, because he, pro he almost certainly didn't say, put me back on the, on the bike. It was, no, was... Well, the, the title really, was really a sort of personal joke for me, mm. if you like, in, in that... Um, Famously, you know, Tom collapsed on the Vontu and was he was 
put back on his bike by the team, you know, by the team personnel, um, because clearly that was what mm. he wanted. And the journalists, one of the journalists who was at the race, was asked off. You know, was he? He printed that um, Simpson's last words mm. were "Put me back on my bike," mm. and this has gone down through sporting folklore. And this was part of the point that I was trying to make: was that you know, sporting folklore isn't all that it seems. Because I, I was told by a very good source that actually that that was not the case. And indeed, the the, the guy, he's now dead. The mechanic in the team, mm. Harry Hall, who was responsible for putting, who actually, you know, heard Tom speak those mm. last words, you know, say the last words were on, on, mm. on, and the words mm. put me back on my bike mm. were never mentioned. Mm. Um, and it seems likely that what happened was that um, the journalist asked the team personnel, did he say anything? Because as a journalist, that unfortunately is what you do in that mm -hmm. event. Did he say anything? Because, you know, you want to quote, unfortunately, morbid as it may sound. Mm. And um, the team personnel most probably mm. said he told us to put him back on his mm. bike. Mm. And that was trans transliterated mm. as put me back on my bike. Yeah. And this, that great thing of on, 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 the ambivalence of that as well, this guy who's dying to, you know, and, and still cannot, cannot rest, cannot, well, cannot it, stay it, off. Well, it made the, you know, it, it, someone said to me, because I remember just at the time I was writing, when I was writing the book, obviously I spoke about it with various colleagues, and one of my most experienced colleagues, a, a guy who'd followed many tours to France, said, well, he said, that was the worst drug scandal of all. And I said, mm. what do you mean? He said, Fistine was worse. And mm. it was bigger. No, no, he said, someone died. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, that was the ultimate, the ultimate mm. lesson, if you like. And, and it, the, his dying was almost inevitable, given, given what, everything of that day. I mean, well, interestingly, mm. a lot of the people who knew him said that, you know, they were shocked, but not exactly surprised yeah. because he'd had this ability to drive himself beyond the limit of what was reasonable, even mm. without drugs. Yep. A lot of them said that he would have died whether or not he had taken mm. amphetamines mm. because he was capable of driving himself mm. so hard. You know, he, there was a story that a guy who worked with him when he was a teenager told me that he, he turned up at work one day having raced at the weekend, then mm. ridden into work, yeah. and he collapsed. Yeah. And there was, there was also somebody in the, in the book, you know, actually says there's almost like a, a doom around him. There was a feeling of doom around him because of his... There are certain characters in sport who, who seem, unfortunately, to be doomed. And I mean, I'm, it was quite interesting, again, to go back up the Vontu several years mm. later, you know, I think no, a couple of years, mm. actually, before I wrote the book, to mm. go back up and see Marco Pantani up there. And a couple yeah. of years later, after, a couple of years after I wrote the book, Pantani died. Mm. And again, when, people, when that happened, people thought, well, unfortunately, we could see this coming. This yeah. was a character who was just, just, he just had a bad feeling. Yeah. And, and, and the tour of that time as well was, 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 was very primitive, wasn't it? I mean, compared to David, they weren't allowed to take water. You know, there wasn't water yeah, stations. And they're scrambling about for alcohol, of all things, at the well, bottom it, of the this, climb. This was, this was the, one, of, one of the great revelations was the, the fact that, you know, OK, guys were using amphetamines, mm. but they were doing things like using bees' venom. Uh. Eggs in sherry. Yeah. It was anything. Mm -hmm. Anything. That they, they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. That was the, the point. So part of the point was that if you, if you were taking amphetamines, you probably took as many as you could just mm -hmm. to, because that... Why not? And also there were no tests as well until it, the year or two years before Tom died. There were no tests. Anything went. I should actually point out, uh, lift up uh, both books. Um, I really enjoyed coming back to uh, Put Me On My Right and Rule Britannia because... The, the, there is a sort of conception now that um, the Tour de France has been sort of uh, taken over uh, by 
link to the clicker. Link to the clicker, yeah. Can we have a picture, please? Yeah. Should be a cover picture. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah, Lovely, so. thank you. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, growing at that rate. Uh, um, and uh, the, the, it's a recent phenomenon, the, yeah. the, the, you know, British in, in, uh, and in the Tour de France. But of course, Royal Britannia goes back to like 55, uh, Robinson, and then goes through uh, the sort of British progression in the race until things that we would never have thought where it's become a, a real kind of staple of the British summer. Well, it's quite entertaining because I can see Royal Britannia after writing Tom um, to coincide with the mm. 50th anniversary of the first full British team mm. in the Tour de France. Um, which was 2005, which was when the book came out. And by bizarre coincidence, there was no British cyclist in the tour that year. And this is only nine years ago. Yeah. So nine years ago, we did not have a cyclist who was, who was field, you know, we did not field a single cyclist mm. from this nation in the tour. And it's quite interesting to think that, you know, seven years later, we won, we, we won mm. the race, yeah. you know? And um, part of, when I wrote the, what was obviously an updated version mm. after Brad won the tour, um, it struck me that it's actually more important to tell the story of how it all happened. That mm. you know, the first British guy to ride the tour was in the 30s or the 20s, yeah. I think. Um, but the first team was 55, and the, it was important to tell these stories and make the point that this wasn't a recent mm. phenomenon and that we shouldn't take any of it for granted. And mm. it was interesting again to see this year. You know, with um, you know, we lost Mark Cavendish mm. day one, we lost Chris Froome mm, day five. You got the sense that it was like, oh, what's, what's happened there? Mm. Well, actually, in the context of what's happened over mm. the last 50, you know, the 57 years since, mm. or 59 years since, her, uh, since the Great Britain team mm. first took part in the tour, that's not a surprise. Stuff happens, bad stuff happens, mm. but, but we, what we mustn't do is become so used to success that we take it for granted. Where would, where would Simpson stand in your sort of pantheon of British cycling greats? Well, I'd, I'd probably put him in, in the top two or three mm. I think because of his the completeness of his um, talent if you like he was a rider who was capable of finishing sixth in the Tour de mm. France of, he was capable of winning the yellow jersey in the mm. Tour de France but he was also capable of competing in the one day classics mm. and the lack of the lack of support around him mm. the fact that he he wasn't pioneering the trail because Brian Robinson was yeah. the pioneer but he wore, it was a time when it was very hard for a guy to, to leave mm. Britain and go over and make a success of cycling in Europe because mm. it was such a hard world to break into mm. um, I think you'd have to put Bradley Wiggins as the, as, as the best performer simply because he was the first one to win the Tour de France and because he has such an all-round body of mm. achievement as well as that um, but Tom would be very very close mm. or possibly level and you've got a hinterland with uh, Bradley Wiggins as well uh, I was reading the, the prologue yeah. uh, that when you were cycling he was a, a young gun on the block yeah well, it's quite it's, it's, it's quite funny to think you know I did write it in the book that um, it would be when 1997 mm. 1998 mm. when I was racing myself in West London there was we used to talk about this junior, <laughs> this fierce junior, who we really didn't want ever to have to race against because we were certain to get our asses kicked, our backsides kicked. Um, you know, and um, we were absolutely terrified of this, mm. that this guy might turn up and, mm. you know, make life very... Well, we probably wouldn't see him. He'd just disappear up the road. And, of course, Wiggins has been integral to the, the scenes that we've witnessed 
this summer in Yorkshire and London and, and in yeah. Glasgow with road races in, as well. In which concert? Let's, let's just have, that, let's just have the, the, the final picture, picture. just to... Just to just, have the final picture? Yeah. No, there's no, not that. There okay, okay, this picture. Um, would anyone... This is, this, is, this is Great Britain, it's the Tour de France. Would anyone care to name the year? 94. 94. Oh, okay, well <laughs> done. Got a book. Well done. So but you, the only way you can tell is by the phone numbers. I think. Mm. I think by the phone numbers. But what's interesting is you look at this and the crowds. That could be Yorkshire this year. The crowds are just as big, I think, you know? Um, so it's a, it's a major phenomenon now. Mm. But we've liked cycling in the Tour de France for quite a long time. Yeah. It's kind of like a hidden thing more than uh, than else has really come to I the think, forefront. I think it, it was it was it, it wasn't as durable in uh -huh. 1984. It was it was a phenomenon that happened and then it just dissipated. Uh -huh. Nothing really came of it mm -hmm. in any substantial way. Mm -hmm. Whereas 2007, I think, was the, mm -hmm. when it started in London. I think mm -hmm. that was the turning point. <laughs> well, obviously, it should have been up here this year, starting a couple of seasons. What's the chances? That, that would have been quite something. What's, what was the chances of a ground depart from Glasgow then? Well, from Edinburgh, I don't know. Well, mm. I think Edinburgh still wants a ground depart, yeah. and I think, given the success of this year's, I know that the, the, the organisers want to come back. So mm. why wouldn't they? Yeah. Having said that, I was in Cornwall last week, and I was thinking, wow, wouldn't the West Country be great for a uh, grand depart? Uh, you know, you could have a fantastic grand depart in Devon. Yeah. So the, you know, you, you, I, th I think anywhere in Britain. It, mm. Certainly, with a population within reach where you implant the yeah. Tour de France now, it will succeed. Finally, for, for my questions before I own that, uh, as I <coughs> went through putting me back in the bike, there was a growing feeling of your affection uh, for Simpson growing in the book. Yeah. Is, that, is that correct? And, and, and what did you learn about him? And what, what, what did you take from him when you were writing the book? There was an awful lot to take from Simpson. I think partly because it was it was the first book I the first book of this kind that I wrote, mm. and I think your first bi you know your first serious book always mm. has a big effect on you. But I think what happens when you write a biography is you become close to the subject in all mm. sorts of ways. You can't help that, yeah. and you either. It would be interesting to talk to both and see whether they dislike their subject sometimes <laughs> because I never have, mm. but certainly with Tom. The thing that really drew me was when I was given access to, to letters that he wrote to mm -hmm. a childhood friend yeah. of his, George Shaw. And what was interesting was getting him without a ghostwriter, without him being interviewed mm -hmm. by someone, without watching him on footage, you know, archive mm -hmm. footage. When you got a sense of the guy's voice, you really felt that, you know, this was... You could see bits of him mm -hmm. and, you know, I could, I could see bits of all the cyclists I knew in him. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, there was a, he was a guy with many, many dimensions. Mm. You know, he was a wheeler dealer. He was a bit of a lad. Mm. You mm. know, he was massively driven. Mm -hmm. He could go from being incredibly nice to being incredibly mm. driven and almost demonic in the way he raced. Yep. And you, I've seen this in other people. Mm. You know, other people I've known and raced mm. with and ridden with. And that, that's quite something to have that drawn together. To, you know, to, be, to have that sort of contact with a guy at that, you know, whatever it was, 40 how long would it be? 35 years distance. distance. That's yeah. quite something. Yeah. 40 years it was, Almost because wasn't. the letters were written in the 50s. Maybe, so, maybe start the questions now. Um, uh, I'll try and peer out and... Oh, we've got... Uh, and I'll try and do it in sections to save the, the young lady having to, to, <coughs> to, to run about. Um, but don't feel, you have, don't feel you have to restrict your questions to, to, um, to you know, Simpson and Royal Britannia and British Cycling everything's, things. Everything's up for grabs, yes. whatever you're interested in. 
Yeah, up the, the top here. Thanks for the books, William. Absolutely wonderful. So can you just give us a, a guesstimate of how clean you think professional cycling is today? I appreciate it. It's a, a guess. How pregnant do you think the panda is in Edinburgh Zoo? <laughs> <laughs> That's my answer. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not being dismissive or anything, but it's as you can say it. You can say it's better than it was. I would say that that's the consensus across the board. That's how it looks to me. That's how it feels to me. That's how it feels to a lot of other people. I think pretty much anybody in cycling would say that. But other than that, we're in panda territory. We're, we're in pregnant panda territory. <laughs> Because no one knows. I'm right. I'm right that no one knows whether the panda is pregnant. Yeah. We think we think it is. We think she. Sorry, she. We think she is pregnant, but we're not sure. So we don't know how pregnant she is. And else, and that's it. Yep. Thanks very. Thanks very much. Hugh McDonald actually mentioned this issue in one of his earlier questions, and that was about the the water that was made available and the restrictions on water. I remember reading um, Brendan Gallagher some years ago saying that he'd, he'd only been allowed to take four small bottles of water and I just don't understand the rationale behind that. Could, could you explain that and what the rules actually yeah, the, were at the time? The, the rationale was that um, they didn't want guys dropping back to the team cars to take on water as they did. As obviously, obviously now they have, a they, they have a rule that you can start taking on water, I think it's 50k into the stage, and on really hot days it's 20k, and you can take on water from the team car up to 50k to go or 25k to go. You couldn't do that in the 60s. I think they relaxed that rule after Tom died. Mm. Um, but they didn't want guys going back to the team cars because they felt it would affect the regularity of the race, that you know, the guys would take advantage. And that was why they didn't allow it. So, so guys were limited to the two bottles that they could take on their bike at the start and the two that would be handed up to them in a musette, like a, you know, the musette, the nosebag thing that the, um, the soigneurs hand up at the feed stations. And that was what they were restricted to. Other than that, it was what they could steal from the roadside, which is why we have those very, very evocative scenes of guys <laughs> filling bottles in roadside springs and perhaps less evocatively <laughs> raiding bars for Coca-Cola and sometimes mm -hmm. brandy. That's right. The, 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 he's, uh, uh, there is at least one eyewitness who, well, uh, uh, Colin Lewis told me that he gave him the brandy. Mm. And for, mm. But that was normal. And Tom mm. said he wanted it because his guts felt bad. MD Olsen, this research won't move <laughs> down. Uh, oh, sorry. So, uh, there's a gentleman in the back in a green t shirt. Yep, sorry. And then there's a, a gentleman, I think, over here as well. Hi, thank you. I just wanted to ask your opinion on um, Dale, uh, Dave Brailsford and Team Sky, who aren't necessarily the most popular team in the peloton, and just the way they go about their, their racing and their training, how it's quite different to how European teams have trained in the past? That's a very big question. Um, <laughs> well, I think, I think what's happened is that Team Sky came in with a, what was quite a different model um, and they've, they've changed that model over the last couple of years, the last three or four years. And teams have, what, what, what was, at the beginning, they, they kind of did their own thing, and no one really knew what they did because it was all very, you know, it was, 
it was what they did, and it came out of it came out of what the British cycling track team had been doing. But what's happened is that um, the nature of professional cycling is that people move on, riders move on, staff move on. So other rider, other teams, and other riders have picked up what Team Sky do. Um, you know, so this is why, for example, we had you know Vincenzo Nibali, Alberto Contador, and um, Chris Froome all in, all in the same hotel on the same mountain in Tenerife, not. Possibly not doing the same training, but um, certainly doing similar things. And it's interesting, you know, you talk, obviously a lot, there was a lot of discussion about the French and how well they've done this year. And what's quite interesting is that the French have developed their own, their own scientific models in a very quiet way, in a sort of backroom kind of way, over the last five, ten years. Um, and they're quite, I wouldn't say resentful, but they certainly feel that Sky have put themselves forward as a model of scientific planning. And indeed, people like me have put them forward because what they've done has been quite different. But actually, the French have been doing quite interesting stuff on their own that has gone very much under the radar. There's somebody in this section here. Hello. Um, what's your take on cycling apps like Strava? Are they good for cycling or they, do they encourage people to push themselves beyond their capabilities? I think they're like everything. They're good in um, what's they're good in. They're good within certain limits. So I think um, I think anything that gets people out on their bikes makes cycling interesting, makes cycling fun, makes it appealing. That has to be good. Um, but it's like everything else. You can you can take it to a, to an extent where it's it's probably not um, not totally healthy. But that's that's like you know most things in in life and in sport are like that. Is there anybody else around here? There's um, this gentleman here, and oh, right, what gentleman here, and there's a gentleman, a lady in the, in the middle here. You. Uh, um, at what point did you think that uh, Tomsey Simpson started to get into drugs during his professional career? No, that, that's a quite a difficult one, um, and I'd have to think back because it's a white. It's obviously it's, it's twelve years since I wrote the book. Uh, 13 years since I wrote the book. Um, my impression is that he got it, that, that it happened gradually, organically. Um, I know that when he gave an interview to Chris Brasher, the Observer, in 19, I think it was 1960, he gave that interview. He mentioned that if you wanted to be one, of, uh, that it was a rat race, and if you wanted to be one of the top rats, there were certain things you had to do. So you don't have to be a master of interpretation to, to figure out that. His, his mind is certainly moving towards it at that stage, for sure. So quite early on in the game, probably. But that's inevitable, because it was, it was common currency in those days. Quite one name. Very quickly. Thank you. Um, and do you think that um, what he did actually, in your eyes, diminishes his achievements, or are you sort of um, ambivalent about that? I think that? we should see the achievements in the context of the time in which they were... Um, achieved. Um, so <sighs> testing didn't happen until 1965. Yeah, well, that was the, it, was, it was pretty much open season until then. After that, it was against the rules. But as I said in the book, it's very, it was a very ambivalent period because there were protests about dope testing coming in. It was uncertain. It, it, it was uncertain whether the dope test would be enforced, whether they would stick. It must have been incredibly hard to be in a situation where it was where it was open season and you could pretty much do what you wanted, and then suddenly have to try and readjust and recalibrate without knowing what everybody else was doing. I wouldn't have liked to be put in that position. Lady. Yeah. 
on uh, women's road racing. Is, do you think it's a sport that's now taken seriously by sports journalists? I think what's happened is that it, it's quite an interesting one because I, I do often ask myself, like, could I at The Guardian have done more? Could, was the more, you know, how, how, do, how have we covered it over the years? And looking back, what I've done, what I think we've done is we've covered the personalities of the women's cycling quite well, but not the actual sport itself. And I think we're, we're moving, I think we're moving from, a you know, so for example, I mean, I know that when, you know, when Nicole Cook won the Commonwealth Games in 2002, 2002 was it 2000, 2000, Manchester 2000, um, you know, we gave that a lot, you know, we, we gave that a lot, was it 2002? It was 2002, 2002. sorry, yeah. I'm, I'm losing it. Um, <laughs> I know we gave that a lot of coverage, and I know we gave Nicole a lot of coverage like when she was doing the World Cups in 2003, but I think what we never did was, was give it enough consistent coverage. Um, I think that's going to change. I think, I, think the, the, I think the biggest change in terms of the British sports media is having a women's tour of Britain on our doorsteps, because that's a very large event, which you can't, you know, you, you can't ignore it. It's, it's there. Um, so I think, it, I think the balance is being redressed. I think the coverage around La Course was very interesting. I think that got an awful lot of coverage, and rightly so. Um, you look at the Ride London, that got a lot of coverage as well. The fact, and there the fact that they had the women's race on the Saturday night with the men's race on the Sunday, that meant that the women's race was, it had, a, it had an existence of its own. It wasn't subsumed into the men's race. And I think the other thing that's happening is that at grassroots level, there has been an absolutely amazing growth in women's, in women's mm. racing. It's quite... It's quite dramatic, the number of women's races that, you know, at grassroots level that are out there now compared to five or ten years ago. So I, I think it's, you know, if you, if you look at a if you were to do a graph of the coverage and the publicity and the participation, the graph would be very steeply inclined upwards. And I think that's not going to stop. Anybody else? There's a gentleman down the front and then one Actually, up the back. I, I would just like to add one thing, which is I think that is an incredibly good thing. Because it is cycling to me is it's 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 a sport that you know it's a very it's, it's a very female friendly sport it's a it's a you know it, it offers a lot for everybody you know and as as Christian Prudhomme says it's you know cycling should be universal it's as simple as that. So, for many people here, I imagine you would be seen as having a, a dream profession in a way that you go around the world and see you know great events going on in the cycling world. I just wondered, as an obvious enthusiast, what you think of as being the most exciting uh, finishes or... <laughs> Sorry, sorry. <laughs> You're okay. uh, he's on drums, You've been upstaged <laughs> by the Air Force. Yes, I am just wondering what, in view of, you know, having been to the tour on so many occasions, so many other great races, what you feel in, in your head are the most exciting events you've seen in your uh, well, journalistic career. Interestingly, the two that I would always point to, which will, I think will surprise people, are the one that I always think of as being the, one of the most emotional and loveliest races to watch was the Madison in Athens in, 90, in 2004, when Bradley Wiggins and Rob Hales got the, nearly got the bronze medal. And nowadays, bronze medal is... <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't do bronze medals anymore. But it was just a fantastic race. It was a fantastic race. I, I love track racing because, as a journalist, when you watch the Tour de France, part of the problem has always been that we're actually 
what we're actually quite divorced from the action because we can't follow it in our cars anymore. We, we watch it on television in a press centre. We watch it at first remove. Whereas track racing, you always watch it in front of you as it happens. So the Wiggins-Hales-Madison was fantastic. That was probably the, you know, one of the times when you're actually you know, you're standing there cheering as they, you know, as they staged the last, you know, the last gasp effort for the medal. And, that, you know, and, and the, the Wiggins-Cavendish-Madison in Manchester in 2008 as well. And also Simon Yates's points race win in Minsk in 2013 because it's very, very rare that you see in a mass start event on the track absolute perfection and I've never seen a points race that was done to absolute perfection before I don't think I ever will again it was it was quite stunning so those are the ones that I would remember and it's and it, it, purely because as I say when it's track it's there in front of you you see you actually see the whites of their eyes as they flat well you, you could do certainly in Madison you can see the whites of their eyes they circle slowly around the, you know around the track uh, gentlemen here, and then there's one up the back, and then we'll, we'll move along. Uh, in Scotland, we have a group called Roadshare. Oh, sorry, I've lost you. Where, just, where are you? you. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, in Scotland, we have a group called Roadshare, and we're trying to pursue uh, presumed liability for vulnerable road users, especially cyclists. Uh, what are your views on presumed liability? Will it change the life of the average cyclist, the competitive cyclist, protect them? Presumed more? liability is when it is. I'm, don't get me. I want to make sure I've got this right. This is when the driver of the more powerful vehicle is presumed to be responsible for an accident. Is that the case? Absolutely. And that's the situation in most European countries except the United Kingdom. I mean, well, in France, I, you're automatically that, liable if you hit a cyclist. You, you, you know, you've got to... Well, put it this way. Anyth anything which makes cycling safer is good. And it's in, it, you know, I imagine 90% of us in this you know, in this hall of drivers. Um, and as drivers, we're all, I think it's interesting, as a driver, you're actually more, you know, I'm a cyclist and a driver, and I think as a driver, I'm actually very, very conscious of the fact that I'm driving this flipping great machine which can kill. It's actually a very scary yeah. thought. And, I, and the thought that I have as a cyclist is I wish I could be certain in my mind that every car and lorry coming up behind me and my friends and my family had that same thought in their minds. And if, if, that, if that legal um, measure would help inculcate that thought in drivers, then it, sh it should happen. We're trying to get a member's bill to well, road for that. More power to your elbow, and please tell me when you do. Well, tell, you me when you, tell me when you try, when, you know, please mm. make, inf you know, inform me through email and Twitter about it, please. Thank Just you. A couple up the back. William, there's been a lot of uh, view on Geraint Thomas in, uh, over this summer, where, where his career should take him next. What are your views, uh, classics or, uh, or a GC contender? Um, both. <laughs> yeah, I th it's, a very, it's a very hard one. I, I think, actually, he probably ought to be looking at classics and one-week stage races, because I think... It's hard to tell, but I, th I think he's probably just not quite good enough at the very high mountains. But equally, it's probably worth him giving it a punt one year just to see what happens, because Brad did that, and you know the rest was history. Mm -hmm. um, he's what he's got, which is complete, which makes him not unique, but it does set him apart from the average. Is the fact that he he has that thing we talked about mm -hmm. with Simpson, that that absolute hunger. I mean, he's 
in 2007, when I profiled him for the first time, I remember talking to David Miller about him, and Miller said, oh, he's like a, pe he's like a penguin from Mag Madagascar. I'm ashamed to say I didn't realise what the penguin from Madagascar <laughs> was at that stage, but of course it's absolutely the case. He has this gorgeously, cuddly-looking exterior, but underneath, you know, he's a, he has the mentality, you know, in sporting terms, he has the mentality of a hired assassin. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody up the bike? Uh, was up the... Sorry. Uh, William... There's another just question, sorry, sorry. in fact. Uh, yep. Um, yep. I doubt there's ever been a winner, and I doubt there ever will be a winner of the Tour de France has been absolutely clean. But that wasn't really an issue before the Times journalists really got hold of it. The Europeans, especially the French, just accepted it. Um, would you prefer to be writing about cycling, just the sport of cycling, without drugs? And the other part of the question is, if that were the case, if the drugs story wasn't a thing, what do you think the, po uh, the popularity of the sport would be in the UK if it wasn't on the front and the back pages? Those are quite complicated questions. Mm. Um, ask me the first one again, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you prefer to be writing just about the sport as opposed to the sport and drugs? I mean, 90% of the No, question... I, I have thought about that. I have, I've thought to myself, you know, wouldn't it be nice if, if you didn't have to write about the drug story? But... The drug story goes back 60 years, so it's been part of the sport since then. It's not a recent phenomenon, so you can't actually... You could, I don't think you could ever write about cycling without writing about the drug story. What was the second question? Without the drug story, the French and everyone, like they still love Richard Ferranc, despite the fact he's obviously a failed cyclist in terms of drugs. So if that was the, the UK's point of view... And if it wasn't on all the front pages of all the newspapers due to the drug scandals, what do you think the popularity of the sport would be in the UK? Did we need that titillation to actually drive us to cycle? No, I, th I think the thing, that, the thing that has made it popular in the UK is actually less the Tour de France than actually our successes at the Olympic Games. And, there was no, there was, and that's actually interesting because there's never been any hint of drugs there. Um, so I think that's what's made it popular in this country, is the, is the, whole, uh, the whole Olympic set up and the Olympic medals and success, it, you know, Athens, Beijing, London and so I, I, I don't, I think I don't think the I think the other thing that's driven it as, as well, paradoxically at the same time, has been, was Armstrong interestingly and there the drug story and the, and the sporting story are completely enmeshed and have been since 2001 um, or since 1999 even um, so it's, a, it, it's, it's impossible to give a clear answer because you can't, you can't rewrite history and say it would have been like this or like that. And does, that does not really answer the question, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's a big and confusing question. Gentleman up at the back. OK, yeah. Um, when Contador was banned in 2012, the, the ban was very marginal whether or not he'd been over or not. Do you believe that there was something going on behind the scenes that pushed that ban through? I can, only, I can only give you the panda answer. I don't know. I genuinely don't know. And speculation is pointless. I mean, it's not pointless. I mean, we can all speculate. Mm. But no, I genuinely don't know. And it's, you, you try and deal with the known knowns, you know, rather than the unknown unknowns. Mm. And you, you, you sometimes go and look for the known unknowns, you know, the unknown knowns. But you know what I mean? So there's no, you know, it's an, that's an unknown unknown. And it's, you know, it, it's a very hard one to speculate about. One gentleman at the back, and then we'll come down to the gentleman here who's been waiting patiently at the front. Um, Jacques Ancatil always, Sorry, said, yeah. Ancatil always said you needed something to get round the Tour de France. 
Um, we can assume, I think, that all the legendary names were on something. Should we think any less of them because of that? Well, we can assume what we like. I mean, you, you're entitled to your assumption as I'm entitled to mine. Um, the thing I know is that, you know, the, the, the thing I, I know is that I, you know, I raced at a moderately high level in a not a very good way, but I did it clean. And my, my extrapolation is that if someone who was doing it as amateurishly as I did can get as far as I did, then there's no reason why people who have infinitely more ability and infinitely more willpower should not be able to do it clean. That's my belief. Well, that's mm. my answer. Gentle. <laughs> <laughs> um, given the number of cyclists that have died over the years from taking drugs, why do you think the UCI seem to be so reluctant to really address this issue properly? Well, I, I'm interested that you say the number of cyclists who died over the years from taking drugs. I mean, there is a, there is a, a number who have, but it's, it's not... Any death is, is bad, but it's not, it's not a massive number. Um, and I, I think we'd all agree that the UCI... I mean, the UCI themselves would say that they... You know, they, they came to the problem late in the 60s, prompted by the Simpson death. That was the point at which they really got going on controls. Um, the Fisti you know, the Festina scandal was another major wake-up for them. Um, they were playing catch-up for, for many years after that. Sorry? Well, I mean, that, the, the fact is that, they, that the UCI can't ban riders for life because that's a WADA thing. They're bound by the WADA code. If they, if they start banning riders for life, if, you know, I, I agree, Alexander Vinokurov was not a, a winner that you wanted to see winning the, the Olympics in 2012 because this was a guy who had been banned for blood doping and had no regrets. But the fact is that he was eligible to compete and the UCI could not stop him competing because the WADA code stipulated a certain number of years ban and that was it. You know, it's... I, I, I accept the UCI have not moved fast in some in certain areas, but, in certain, but, it's, but equally, I, I feel that they're also quite an easy target. The lady? Yeah, I thought to get away from drugs. Um, <laughs> who do you think the next British writer who will win the Tour de France? Peter be? Kenner. Really? Why? Yeah. Why? Because he's got the he's got the um, he's got the killer instinct and he's got the racing instinct. Um, he's supremely talented. I don't see why not in, in, a, in two or three years down the line. I don't see why not. Question. Where does that leave Geraint Thomas? Well, as I, said, as I said, the gentleman asked me about Geraint Thomas earlier on. I think that um, I think Kenner has a better chance of winning the Tour de France than Thomas um, because he's a better climber. Uh, Sorry? Commonwealth Games last week in Glasgow. Kenner was a bit mad. He went off and... Mm. With, um, it, it was an interesting. It was an interesting. It was an interesting tactical move. Let's see. <laughs> Can I have one more question. Do, do you think that um, women cycling is drug-free? Again, I'd refer you back to the panda. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, it's, it's You know, it, it clearly isn't because women have tested positive in the past, and Nicole Cook has been quite outspoken about the things that she saw. So clearly, it hasn't been clean, isn't? And it, you know, the, the, the probably are people out there still, but. We're in the realms of speculation, unfortunately. 
Um, Hi, Ryan. Uh, I might be misremembered here, but in your Eddie Merckx biography, you mentioned uh, you were taking notes towards a future book on Flemish cycling. Is that the case? That is indeed the case, and it's, um, the book is there waiting to be written. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it, it is, it's ready to be, well, it's, it's ready to be written, but I've got to get round to it, unfortunately. Um, I, want to, I want to do it. If, any, if anybody out there wants to publish a, a, a book on Flemish cycling, come and see me afterwards. Anybody else? Here? There's a gentleman here. Um, it's about drugs again, sadly. Um, I was just wondering what your feeling was about, there's a number of names being banded about, Alexander Vinokurov, um, Lance Armstrong, Tommy Simpson, and uh, David Miller. How these guys are perceived after they've been caught, basically. You know, David Miller's went on to become a campaigner and well-loved by certain sections of cycling uh, fans, myself included. I, I, have a lot of time for him, but there's other people who you hear mentioned, like when Vinokurov won the Olympics. It wasn't so popular, so how do you think that comes about? Is it just purely because he's British and Scottish, or um, is it something else? Is there something because there's no remorse shown? Or Well, I think what we have to remember is that with drug-taking cyclists, we're dealing with human beings, and every human being is different. And every human being acts in a different way. And every drug-taking cyclist reacts and acts in a different way. Um, and I think we base our judgment on how they act once they've been caught, depending on you know, what remorse they show, what contrition they show, what willingness they show to put their, you know, to redress the balance of what they've done. I think in terms of, of David, it's it's impossible not to feel that here is a guy who probably couldn't have done a great deal more well, you know, once he had been caught and served his time. You know, this is a guy who's founded what is clearly a pioneering team, Garmin Sharp. On, he's, founded that, you know, he's helped to found that team on what I would call pioneering principles with the riders incredibly tightly screened to make sure they can't take drugs. And you know, with a good youth program as well. He's, he's spoken at conferences, he's been open about the fact, he's put his hand up and says, I, you know, I am an ex-doper, and you know, here I am. And, and the other thing he's done is he's managed to compete at the highest level and win races, which proves to, to his peers and to the public and to the media that it can be done. So I think you know, that's why it's, it's very hard not to have a soft spot for David, because there is a guy who was forced to confront what he'd done, confronted it, and moved on in a very positive way. The same can't be said of other people. But that ultimately is up to them, and it's then up to us to make our own individual judgments about those people. Anybody else? And there's, there's a gentleman there. Right. Hi. Thank you. Sorry. Do you think um, Dave Brailsford harbours a desire to win the tour with the likes of Thibaut Pino and Roman Bardet, or was it just a, a sort of throwaway remark to the press? Interestingly, it was something that he said to Richard Moore and myself. Yeah. I don't know if Richard told you this, yeah. but he, Richard, he told Richard Moore and myself this back in February um, as a sort of throwaway remark. I, th I think it was a throwaway, a throwaway remark as, uh, again, and I think it was also a remark that was made before Pino and Bardet showed, them, showed quite how competitive they were. And we have to remember that in terms of the French, there's another Frenchman who wasn't even at the Tour this year who's better than either... Pino or Bardet, and that's Warren Barguil. So I, I, 
I wouldn't look too seriously upon it. Uh, anybody else? I'm probably creating a hostage of fortune mm -hmm. there because mm -hmm. the chances are in two weeks' Gentlemen, time, yeah. Thibaut Pino will have signed for Sky now. They've said that, but um, hey, we'll stick our necks um, out. Do you think Brailsford got it wrong? We left uh, Wiggins out of uh, the Sky team. Just, you know, it removed his Plan B effectively. In hindsight, yes. <laughs> but hindsight is very easy. I can understand why he didn't put Wiggins in the team, but I think personally he should have done, given given where the given where the tour was starting, and given the fact that you know this is an, an uncertain sport as we all know, and just having that second string to your bow, even if you know, I, equally, I don't think Brad would have won the tour this mm. year. I'm not even sure. I think he might have he might have ridden into the top ten. But even that would have been would have been good enough. So I think I think it was a mistake. But then it was a, it was an understandable mistake, and that's how it is. Gentlemen here, and then there's a gentleman down here. Who would you put up as your greatest ever cyclist? Robert Miller. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not and I'm not just saying that because I'm here. No, no it's it's a, it's a very very hard one. I mean, uh, Chris Hoy. I couldn't say. I mean, mm. I really couldn't say. What, um, it's that's that's an impossible question. Merckx, you wrote the, the Merckx, biography. Merckx would be the great. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Merckx copy, mm. copy. Mm. I don't know. Mm. I honestly, mm. I on, that would probably depend what day of the week it was, what the state of the moon was, what the tide was doing. Um, no, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't ask that. I, I, could offer many, I could offer several candidates. Miller would be one, Hoy would be another, Merckx would be another. Um, Miller might be, the, the other Miller, David might go in there if I was feeling in a certain mood. It's, um, it's a hard one. Beryl Burton. <laughs> Beryl Burton, why not? Um, cyclists can only, human Where? beings Sorry, can only... I, I just, can't just see it. Oh, so, sorry, it's a bright, there's a very bright light shining mm, on yeah. me. Um, human beings can only produce so many watts or per kilogram. And uh, do you think cyclists can go much faster or bikes can go much faster? Or is that it? Or, or, do, you, or do we manipulate that with drugs or molecular engineering by some other way? They'll always go faster. The bikes will be faster. The road surfaces will be better. They'll be better trained. Um, so I, they'll go faster, for sure. Gentlemen, yeah. I think what, what will happen is that the curve will let will you know the the rate of improvement will slow. That's that's the main development. Yeah. Yep. I felt a little bit irritated by uh, David Brailsford in the tour when he said that he allowed the Yates brothers to go to Oracle Green Edge to ride more regularly, then we could bring them back to Sky, and then what a great sort of benefit we've done for them. Do you think that was a spin, and do you think that Sky is now a team that is promoting British riders, or is it a team purely on winning the Tour, regardless of the nationality? I, th I think the evidence is that Sky is a team which has moved away from the original model of developing British riders and is now focused on winning the Tour for itself. And I think the fact that they didn't sign the Yates brothers is absolutely, you know, it's totally symptomatic of that. Um, you can understand why Sky have gone down that road because there are only a certain number of rides you're allowed to have in a team. And if you're trying to win all three major tours, 
the room for rider development may be less. But I mean, I personally feel that a lot of sport is about developing young talent. I think it's the reason why the French have, have performed so well in the last, you know, the last three or four years. There's been a lot of very good Frenchmen out there, and the reason for that is because, you know, certainly three of their teams, AG2R, FDJ, and Jean-René Bernard's, Jean-René Bernardo's teams, have all had a very big focus on youth development with under-23 teams feeding into their pro teams. They've turned riders pro at a young age. I, I think that's the way that sport should be. So I, I think that Sky, in that, in that regard, are not, not doing it the way that I would personally do it. But then that's, you know, that's it's not my decision. So coming along this way, is there anybody here uh, like to ask a question? Uh, don't want to miss any of it. Um, uh, go back on this gentleman yeah. in the front. Uh, thank you. Oh, um, in the light of Peter Sagan's move next season to Saxon Tinkoff, I just wonder what your opinion would be of how far do you think Peter Sagan can go in his career? Because he's been concentrating really in green jerseys so far, and people have said that uh, he's uh, maybe more should concentrate more on the one-day classics. It's an interesting one because Sagan looked two years ago to have absolutely limitless potential, and certainly in the tour this year he didn't. He, he looked. As if that you know, as if the ceiling had been reached. And I think the, he's hit the classic problem, which is that um, you know you try to be good at lots of things and you're not good at any of them, or you're not you're, you're not you're not at your very best at any of them. He's very very good. He's superbly talented, but there is a problem with an all-around rider, and we see we saw it. You know, we've seen it with Sean Kelly. I think I think he should probably be focusing solely on the classics. That would, but it's a problem that cycling has because we're, you know, the sport is very much Tour de France oriented now, and it's very hard for a sponsor to resist the the prospect of winning that green jersey, winning one stage. One stage is worth a classic, so it's a difficult one. But I, you know, I, th I think he's more suited to the more physical classics. The lead in the front. Thank you. I'm sorry. Oh yes, I've got you there. Yep. Yeah. Um, so you've actually led into what I was going to say. It's great that cycling's becoming more popular, but why do you think it's the Tour in particular in France rather than of Spain or of Italy? I've been reading a lot about the Giro lately, and that seems to have such a great history, and there's barely any coverage in the British mainstream media. It's very hard. I mean, and it's not a recent phenomenon. I mean, the Tour has always been central. Um, you know, as far back as I can remember, it's always been about the Tour de France and the Giro and the Vuelta have always been, you know, slightly, you know, not at the same level. I mean, they're, they're, they're at a great level as events in their own right. Um, historically, it's nothing new, but the, the thing that's happened is that over the years, it has become increasingly tour-centric. And I think what's, what's happened is that um, the Tour has the winning formula. You know, it's, it's in July when, you know, Probably a lot of the world is thinking about cycling. You know? mm. um, it's it's managed to. It's just become that 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 international focus. You know, I think it's if you look back at when, you know, when Americans like you know like you know Greg LeMond came over in the in the eighties, he wanted to ride the Tour de France. That was what he wanted to do. He, you know, it was it was it was number four on his list of objectives: win the Tour de France by by age twenty five. Um, Giro d'Italia didn't get didn't get a mention, um, so that's as far back. You know, he made that list in 1978, I think. Mm. So, 
it's not a new thing, but it's just become more accentuated. And it's, it's something that we, I think we need to celebrate the fact that we have this, you know, this, this massive event of global dimensions which take place every year in our sport, which no other sport can boast. Last question, unfortunately, because oh, we're, we're running out of time, uh, as always, and we've got to get... How, how good were Robert Miller's achievements at a time when the media and press were less interested in cycling? Well, they, were, they speak for themselves. I mean, you know, Robert was good enough to win one of the three great tours. He probably would have won one of the three great tours if he'd been managed differently, if he hadn't been asked to ride two in a year. Because physically, he didn't have the, um, the capacity to ride two major tours in a year. And in the years when he rode one, he was very, you know, he, you know so he was second in the Giro in 1987. He was very, very, you know, very close to the win. That was his first first one of that year. Same thing with the Vuelta in 86 and 85. Um, 84 and 89 he rode only the Tour and you know his performances there again speak for themselves. So his achievements remain because it, the other thing Robert could do was he was you know we, we'd sort of you know we, again we, we focus on the Tour de France but he was you know he, he was capable of winning medals at a world championship. It wasn't far off at the Worlds. He, was, he would get up there in the Classics. He'd get, you know, he, would, he could win you know one week stage races. Mm. And he did all this at a time when it still wasn't that easy being an English speaker. Well, good time for one more, I've just been yeah. told. So, uh, going go back to Robert Miller, that's why I would, you know, when the gentleman over there asked me who my greatest cyclist ever would be, Robert was the first name that sprang to mind. Uh, as a journalist who documented the Armstrong years, obviously very closely, were you taken in by the Armstrong lie or did you always have your suspicions? I was taken in by it in 1999. I'm quite happy to confess that because I didn't realise until um, until the Thailand. Well, obviously I knew that I found out later on that he was doing EPO. But at the time in 1999, I thought there was a good chance that he was doing it clean. And the reason I thought that was that obviously I experienced the 1998 Tour de France. I was there as well. I saw the 96 and 97 Tour de France's. With hindsight, I saw the 96 and 97 Tour de France's in the context of 98 when what you were looking for was one team that was absolutely supreme, where the riders could do absolutely anything they wanted. And interestingly, US Postal in 1999, they weren't like that. There were four riders on that team who were good. And I, at the time, I thought, well, that's kind of reasonable. You know, Hamilton's a climber, Livingston's a climber, Armstrong, we've always known he's extremely good. We all want to think that a year after Festina, everyone has seen sense. What I didn't realize until I read Tyler Hamilton's book was that actually the team had a plan deliberately only to have three or four riders on the programme using EPO in order to hoodwink people like me. So the moral there is that as journalists, what we all do is we all look. We all look for the last doping scandal. So we all look at it all in the you know we all look at it in the context of what we've seen and what we're very bad at doing, and it's kind of inevitable, is seeing the next one coming along. Because why would you? It's something you, it's it's something that's been kept hidden. It's something that's unknown. It, and in many cases, the concealment is extremely efficient. Does that I, answer the question? I have to stop there, unfortunately, because we've got to stick very closely to time. Uh, I would like to make some there's a, some thanks to our, our signer and to the young lady who's scuttled up me. Yes, uh, thank uh, you very much. And, really. and, 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 and thank you to our chair. <laughs> You've done a great job. Uh, I would like to thank... Uh, 
I'd like to thank each and every one of you for being here tonight and the questions. We knew there would be no problem with questions, which is why I kept it kind of tight at the beginning. There's a Dura Unbound, which is uh, some kind of non-cycling drug, apparently, but there's a Dura Unbound for anybody who wants it in a free event uh, across. If you go out and turn sharp right, uh, William will be signing his books. I can unreservedly recommend both. And, uh, by saying that um, not only is, uh, in particular, I put one on the bike, one of the, uh, the great cycling biographies, but I think it's one of the great sporting biographies. Uh, so unreservedly, uh, and Robitaille has just made more fascinating as the years pass. I would like to finish uh, by thanking Will, uh, for, William here, for a, a very entertaining hour. Sorry it couldn't be a bit longer. And, uh, and again, thank you all very much. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.